You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. So there's an election happening next Tuesday, if you haven't heard, and it's an important one. Okay, before we get into it, I need to just say, this isn't an election story, and I promise I'm not going to say the T word. But to give you some context for our story, we have to talk about the election, specifically how we got here. Let's go back in time about four years when another election was happening, another important election. Because we're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business. Hillary Clinton has said that this moment was one of her biggest regrets from the campaign. She was in Columbus, Ohio, at a presidential town hall, when someone asked the question, make the case to poor whites who have voted Republican why they should vote for you and your economic policies. And she said, I'm the only candidate which has a policy about how to bring economic opportunity using clean renewable energy as the key into coal country because we're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business. Right, Tim? And we're going to make it clear that we don't want to forget those people. Those people labored in those mines for generations, losing their health, often losing their lives, to turn on our lights and power our factories. Now we've got to move away from coal and all the other fossil fuels. But I don't want to move away from the people. about how to bring economic opportunity using clean, renewable energy as the key into coal country. Because we're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business. Right, Tim? And we're going to make it clear that we don't want to forget those people. Because we're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal companies out of business. For many, this confirmed that Hillary Clinton was just another out-of-touch elite who didn't understand real, working-class people. Then, the thing happened. ...to introduce to you the president-elect of the United States of America, Donald Trump. Right now, a historic moment. Uh, We can now project the winner of the presidential race, CNN projects. Donald Trump wins the presidency. The business tycoon and TV personality capping his improbable political journey with an astounding upset victory. Donald J. Trump will become the 45th president of the United States, defeating Hillary Clinton in a campaign unlike anything we've seen in our lifetime. And suddenly, everyone wanted to know. What's the deal with these hillbillies in the mountains? Why can't they just let go of the coal mines? And the answer they came up with was that these are poor, oblivious, and ignorant people holding on to a lost cause. But this wasn't anything new. For 150 years, they've been viewed as backwards or behind the times, both technologically and socially. It was the same narrative being repeated. Today, as the election inches closer, we're going into the heart of coal country to talk to the people who are living and breathing this every day to find out what's missing from the narrative. Allow me to show you something. Now, I'll say I'm Stephanie Phillips, and this is Paradigm. Uh, I said, you're Stephanie Phillips, and this is Paradigm. Right? Okay. One of our producers, Annalisa Nielsen, is going to take it from here. I grew up in Buckhannon County. Uh, I spent uh, first, I guess, uh, 20, 30 years, I'd say, 30 years in Buckhannon County. And then I moved up in here. But I guess you're interested in the coal. 
My grandfather, he was a coal miner. He took pneumonia and died. My dad, he was a he was a young man, and he he started working in the coal mines at a young age too. Uh, he had black lung. He dropped black lung. And I started in the coal mines when I was about 16 years old. Now I'm, uh, my lung doctor <clears throat> has told me <clears throat> about six months ago that I need to try to get my black lung because it wasn't getting no better. And I, I, I know that, you know, I can understand that. But. Can I ask you, do you, would you like to see the mines closed eventually? No, no, I don't. This is Kent. He was an underground coal miner deep in the heart of Appalachia for the majority of his life. No coal mining, it's a hard life. When that dust... Uh, without you being there, it's just hard to realize, but the, you couldn't see your hand with a headlight that, that close, you know, within a foot of you, you couldn't see your hand. The dust was so thick. I don't know if you were able to make it out between Kent's coughs, but some of that dust has settled in his lungs now. Kent's doctor encouraged him to sign up for the Black Lung Benefit, a monthly payment and medical benefits that coal miners in America are legally entitled to if they're diagnosed with black lung. But so far, he's had some trouble collecting. I've, I've been told that I have black lung several years ago. It's got so the laws that it's hard to collect. I'm, Sorry, you were told you had black lung? Yes, uh-huh. But you couldn't collect? No. Uh, no, the compensation company started fighting me on it, and, uh, and they outfit me. <laughs> so they got a lot more money than I had. Eventually, Kent had to retire because of the effect coal mining was having on his health. Today, he lives on top of a mountain in Tazewell, Virginia. Kent is not someone who's used to talking about himself. But he sat with me patiently, and he tried to give me thoughtful answers to my questions. Sometimes I'd push him on one of his answers, and he'd tell me, You know, I'm being as honest with you as I can. I just, a lot of things that skips my mind anymore. Ken's father was a coal miner. His grandfather was a coal miner. His uncles were coal miners. If anyone knows how hard the job can be on a coal miner's body, it's Kent. So I guess I really need to know what I really know what I had to face because I've seen too much of my forefathers going through the same thing I'm going through now. And you did it anyway. Just did it anyway. By now, you might have seen the videos or read in the news about coal miners protesting the so-called war on coal. We're going to stop this war on coal. Who's jobs? Who's coal? Whose land is this? talk about that coal-fired power plant here just for a minute because that coal-fired power plant is under attack and i'll be darned if we're gonna let anybody tear down our lives i don't care who they are are you gonna stand with me as i fight this fight and we fight this battle together So what is keeping these coal miners so dedicated to keeping alive an industry that is both bad on their bodies and bad for the environment? This is what I'm trying to figure out. So I went deep to the heart of coal country to try to find an answer. And I heard the same thing over and over. It's uh, just part of life, you know. If you stayed in that country, in this part of the country at that time... You didn't have no choice if you're going to stay here and make a living, you know. I know what you might be thinking. No other option? Really? Well, to understand how coal mining became the only option for people in Appalachia, you really have to understand the history. Yeah, that background is really important. This is Dr. Dwight Billings. He's Professor Emeritus of Sociology at the University of Kentucky with a research interest in Appalachian Studies. And one of the things that he's researched is what the region was like at the turn of the 20th century. People were living a very good life based on subsistence farming. But over time, because of erosion, family farm subdivision, smaller and smaller units of production, 
the food supply started to go down. And so by the time into the early 19th century, there's really kind of a, I think, an agricultural crisis. And that agricultural crisis created an opportunity. For the coal industry, because you had a dependent population that was previously unwaged and by necessity could work for low wages. So the coal industry started moving from like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, into West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, as the railroads developed that area. And when they got there, of course, they found massive quantities of excellent quality coal, but they also found a potentially cheap labor source. My grandfather, he was a coal miner. And some of the tales that they tell back when that uh, they was working in the coal mines, it was such a hard way of going that uh, they worked all day in the coal mines and they would be able to come out and buy a sack of flour or a sack of meal with their wages. Appalachia is not only unique because of the huge amounts of coal, it's also very remote. At the turn of the 20th century, America was building railroads connecting the country, including railroads into the difficult-to-reach Appalachian Mountains. So out-of-state coal companies decided to explore the region, and there they found excellent quality coal and an eager workforce, but very little infrastructure to sustain their vision for the industry. Because it was created out of a rural area, the companies had to build towns, schools, churches, transportation, all of which simply augmented the power relationship that the company had, the paternalism of the traditional coal camp. And so you really got an incredible, almost a total environment. Civil liberties were not permitted in those coal towns. You couldn't subscribe to a newspaper. You couldn't gather. You couldn't, as they said, congregate more than two or three people at a time, unless it was church. And those churches were often sponsored by the companies. People in Appalachia went from being completely self-sufficient, living off of their own land, to being completely reliant on the coal companies. These companies needed to keep their workers from gathering in order to keep them from organizing. It was methodical and intentional. You might have a vision in your mind today of a very white, English-speaking coal miner. But at one time, coal miners were perhaps the most diverse group of workers in the country. Coal companies intentionally brought in workers from all over the world in the hopes that the cultural and language divides between their laborers would keep them from unionizing. I know this might feel like ancient history today, but it really wasn't that long ago. Kent actually lived in one of these coal-owned towns, commonly referred to as coal camps. Back then, they just got scripts. They had to cash their work into the company stores and got their grocers or whatever they needed out of that. It'd just be like a piece of money, but it'd have the coal company's name on it. And you could take that to uh, the company stores, what we uh, what the hell them called. The company would have a store. And you could take that and every, how much it was worth, or you could buy that much in groceries. Instead of paying coal miners their full salary, coal companies would pay a percentage of their wages in company scripts. Scripts were coins that had the coal company's logo printed on them, and they were kind of like monopoly money. They were only redeemable at stores that were owned by the coal companies. And this is how coal companies were able to get control over the resources in the region. It also meant that they could hike up the prices. Going to buy some flour or a bag of beans with your scripts? You can expect to pay a full day's wages, and that money would be going right back to your boss. This history of coal camps means that coal is ingrained in every part of Appalachia. The schools, the churches, the music, all of it. Coal built Appalachia, and everyone living there relied on it. But what I want to know now is why coal still has such a hold over the region. Why do people still feel like they need coal? Sure, the coal companies were in the right place at the right time, and they got a great head start. But how have they been so successful at keeping that lead? The other thing was absentee ownership. Two-thirds of the surface of West Virginia has been owned by out-of-state corporations that have the power to diminish the tax base, the power to 
ensure the election of sympathetic public officials. And so taxes have been kept low. Land for alternative development is not available. Alternative industries are pushed away. And it's not just some terrible land ownership deals that make it difficult for other industries to come into the region. From my home in Toronto, Canada, it takes me about 11 hours on a good day to drive to Ken's house in Tazewell, Virginia. I could take an eight-hour flight with two stopovers into Bristol, Tennessee, the closest airport, but then I need to rent a car when I got there and I need to drive another two hours and the whole thing would take me at least 10 hours and cost me well over $600. If I wanted to go by bus, I could take nine different buses from eight different bus companies and the whole thing would take about 20 hours. It's not easy to get in or out of Tazewell, Virginia. And that makes it difficult to bring in new industry. What that means is that for people like Kent, for his father and his grandfather, the coal mines really were the yes. only option. What'd you have for supper? Have you had supper yet? Yes, we just had uh, chicken burritos. Oh, wow. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah, so we just ate. Still got some if you need them, if you're hungry. Want some? My grandma made some fried chicken. Oh, my. What I didn't tell you before is that I actually know Kent because he's my cousin. Technically, he's my first cousin twice removed. Or my grandma's first cousin? I had to look that up. She made some grains and some cornbread and beans. Oh, and yeah, she really went all out this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I had to tell you, it's some good eating. Home country eating, ain't it? Mm-hmm. If you keep going down the path from Kent's driveway, you'll come to a road called Slope Street. Living up to its name, the street scales a mountain at a truly perilous angle, ending in a river that cuts through a narrow valley. When I was a kid, we'd walk down the road, and before you'd know it, you'd picked up so much momentum, you'd be barreling down towards the river, begging your feet to keep you upright. At the end of the street, across from the river, live Rex and Yvonne Cole. That's right, even their last name is Cole. And this brings me to my personal interest in this story. See, this is my grandparents' house. My papa was born in a coal camp, and my mama's whole family were coal miners. Both of their fathers worked in the mines, and both of their fathers died from injuries that happened in the mines. It just gets in your blood. Your family, everybody, everybody lived coal. My grandma's dad worked in the mines for years, until... The accident didn't come until I was married and they called said he had been crushed in the mines and they called me home and said he probably wouldn't live till I got there he did live though for a little while longer he was paralyzed from the waist down for years until he eventually succumbed to his injuries and arguably those years after his injury were some of the better years of his life he didn't have to go into the mines anymore he had more time to spend with his family he was able to draw on government assistance. That was the time they saw more money come in than any other time. It was after he got hurt. They were able to have things then. Uh, the money that he made from the mining didn't really keep a family hardly going. It was very poor wages. We had to survive best way you could. My grandpa's father wasn't so lucky. Would you mind talking about when your when your dad died? No. No, I, I remember when he got killed. He, uh, but it was a common thing, you know. You you you'd hear the sirens every day from. He worked in West Virginia, Aminata, and they would bring the guys that got hurt in the mines to the hospitals at Richland. And I remember my mother used to just get shook up every time she'd hear. You know, hear those sirens. And, and one day, Dad was in one. How, and how old were you? Fourteen. So did you did you go see him? Yeah. Yeah, He. Uh, I didn't see him before he died. Mom went to the hospital, but he he was conscious and talked to her. He didn't know he was, what he'd done, he bled to death internally. So he didn't know? No, he didn't know he was in bad shape as he was because he'd been hurt so many times before, you know. He always survived. My grandpa was born in a coal camp, but he wasn't raised there. 
He didn't come from generations of coal miners. His family came to coal mining after a bit of bad luck. My granddad was a, he was a farmer. He was a, he was a real prominent guy. He owned a lot of property. He owned a sawmill and he owned a general store. But he, uh, he got sick and died when he was a young man. And this was a common story for people in Appalachia around the turn of the century. Coal companies came in making deals with landowners, sometimes forcing them to sign deeds that they could not read or lying about the details of their land extraction agreements. This left many people with only one option. They lost everything and, and dad had to go to work in the mine. And that was because they didn't have... Anything else? No, that was about all they had to do. That's the only work that were, was uh, available, you know, uh, it paid a decent wage. I want to focus on this idea of making a decent wage. Didn't I just finish telling you about how the coal companies paid a percentage of the wage in scripts? How coal mining was such a hard life? And it's true, of course, there were other less dangerous, more respected jobs available. Someone had to teach at the coal-owned schools. Someone had to preach at the coal-owned churches. You could run your own general store like my great-great-grandfather, or you could opt out of the system entirely and keep living off of your own land. But if you were lucky enough to keep your own land, and many were not, you had to know how to farm it, how to cultivate it. You had to source everything you needed on those tricky mountain terrains as the community around you was gradually siphoned off into the mines. Mom said back there in the Depression that people on that mountain where they lived were actually starving, didn't know how to live, you know. So yeah, the wages weren't great for coal miners in those early days, but it was better than starving. See, they owned the, the housing the people lived in, they owned the stores, and they would pay you half of your paycheck in, in their own money that they made. And the only place you could spend it was in their store. And everything in those stores was about twice as high as it was anywhere else. And that's one thing the unions helped the miners on right there. It's pretty much impossible to talk about coal in Appalachia without talking about the unions. As the United States recovered from the Great Depression, the United Mine Workers expanded and gained strength. But it wasn't power that was easily won. There were straight-out battles that were fought over the unions, including the Battle of Blair Mountain in West Virginia, where 10,000 armed coal miners came up against mine operators and strike breakers. Union supporters embraced the derogatory nickname Redneck, which originally made fun of the sunburnt necks of physical laborers. And they wore red scarves into battle to let others know that they were sympathetic to the unions. Coal miners spent years fighting and striking for better working conditions. And today, coal miners really do make a decent wage. And I mean decent, like six figures. So do coal miners just not care about the impact that coal is having on our current climate crisis? Do you think that a lot of coal miners believe in climate change? Sure. Sure they do. They're just like everybody else. But they think about that pocketbook, too. They, they got to have money to live on. And that's where right now, you, you know, the, these operators are using that. So how do they make that tough choice to work in a mine if they believe in climate change? Well, they're thinking about right now, feeding their kids. That's how they make that choice. They won't take another job if it don't pay as good as the coal. And, and there's nothing's going to pay as well you know, uh, just a common laborer make $35, $40 an hour in a coal mine. This guy next door does. And, and in a way, I can, I can understand that. He's thinking about now. Not worried about tomorrow. I've been wanting to talk to someone who works in the mines today, so I spoke to the guy next door. Hello. Hi, John. Hello. Hi, it's Annalisa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I figured it. I, I know this time I've seen the restricted, so I know it was you. This is Jonathan Jones. He's my grandparents' next door neighbor. If I sound a little sheepish here, it's because I am. 
This was the second time I had to interview him because I accidentally deleted our first conversation. John was furloughed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but at the time when I spoke to him, he'd been an underground miner for more than a decade. We're just the same as everyone else. You know, we're not out to destroy the environment. We don't see it that way. We, we're just trying to provide for our families and try to live a good life. And there's not a lot of opportunities for us in our areas. We can't just go out and get a, another job that pays real good money. There's, there's not jobs like that here. Could I get you to tell me how you first got into coal mining? I started in the coal mining when uh, I was working at Walmart and uh, had a girlfriend at the time, and she got pregnant and uh, decided that it was uh, time to find a job that would be able to support a family and I didn't have time to finish an education. Or I knew that a retail job wasn't going to support a family, so I asked my dad to help get me a job at the mines he worked at. And a couple months later, I took my first steps underground. Minimum wage in Virginia is $7.25 an hour. That's less than a fifth of what John could be making working in the mines. And who can live on that? I mean, who can go? Who who would? Who would voluntarily take and quit a $100,000 a year job to work a $30,000 a year job? No one. No one would do that because it doesn't make sense. I needed a, a job to support a family. And that, that changes that changes a lot of things, you know. Could you um, tell me about your first day going into the mine? Well, I was uh, nervous. Uh, didn't really know what to expect. I see all these guys around there putting their uniforms on. They're all dirty, and everything I've got is brand new. And it's just a, like a, a culture shock to me. Like, is this really happening? I, I, I couldn't believe it, but... And it's the middle of the night, and I had to work third shift, so it's already it's dark outside. I can't see anything out there except having the light on. You get to the entrance of the mine, and it's got this big, huge metal gate with a chain. And the, the gate opens, and, and, you know, it's like I'm just, I just get a little scared. But I'm, but I'm calm at the same time, just really nervous. What, what, what's, what am I about to see? You know, am I going to make it through the night? Am I going to be okay? All these different emotions running through my head. Coal miners know how dangerous their job is before they go down that mine. They watch their fathers, grandfathers, uncles, brothers die or get severely injured or struggle to catch their breath through the coal dust that settled in their lungs. So why do they keep going? Our job is dangerous. It's bad for our health, but we're all there for one reason, and that's to earn a paycheck to take care of our families. Hey, don't go anywhere. We're going to take a quick break, but I promise you we'll be right back. The most efficient route to get to my grandparents' house in Tazewell, Virginia, takes me down the I-79 through Pennsylvania and West Virginia. About halfway through the state of Pennsylvania, you'll start to notice two things cropping up along the horizon the rolling Appalachian Mountains, and the billboards about coal. Coal keeps the lights on. Support our coal miners. Friends of coal. You'll start to see these phrases a lot. On bumper stickers and t-shirts and even tattoos. Once you get to Tazewell, you might even pass by the official coal miners memorial of the Commonwealth a black granite statue of a smiling coal miner carrying his lunch bucket in one hand and a coal pick in the other and standing in front of a wall engraved with the names of over 1,000 miners who have died in mining accidents. You would think that the people who are working so hard to keep the coal mines open would want to shy away from focusing on the dangers of the job. But coal companies have been very successful at turning this sacrifice into a source of pride for the people of Appalachia. And it's hard for me to not notice the similarities to the messaging of another industrial complex that you might be more familiar with in the United States. I had a good friend that went over in uh, Vietnam, and he didn't come back. Well, he come back, but he come back in a body bag. When Kent was young, he was drafted to the Vietnam War. 
but he was found medically unable to serve before being deployed in 1969. You know, I, these guys that went and served, and I've always felt guilty because a lot of my cousins and my friends had to go serve, and I didn't. I felt bad about it. I felt felt less than a man sometimes. You know, just things like that that makes you thankful that you didn't have to go, but it also makes you feel guilty because you didn't do your share. <laughs> Did you see friends of yours in the mines that you lost? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did that. Kent had worked his way up to being a foreman in the mine. One day, he decided to head home early, or as Kent says, he laid off for the day. Just got a want to. I had a good friend that got too close to the rib. He got hung up. He started backing it up, trying to get unhung and he messed around and it's hard to describe but anyway basically Ken's friend got stuck in the mine and he was sticking his head out to see what he'd done and how he could get unstuck and then he backed into the rib like it and just busted his brains out you know a good friend it kind of bothered me because I felt like if I hadn't laid off that day maybe he might have been still living you know it bothered me. I know the Lord's in charge of all these things, too, but there's a lot of things as you get in your mind through the years and you wonder if you could have made a difference or changed anything. The dangers of coal mining obviously make it a terrible job, but it also distinguishes it from other jobs. The sacrifice is a source of pride. In the same way that generations of Americans go to war to prove how much they are willing to sacrifice for their country, maybe Appalachian men need coal mining to prove how much they are willing to sacrifice for the people they love. As young Appalachian men watch their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers go die in the mines, they learn that this is what love looks like. And if you don't go down the mines, if you choose to sit this one out, well, as Kent said, it makes you feel guilty because you didn't do your share. I wanted to understand more about how this mentality formed and its connection to those billboards and t-shirts and bumper stickers that I would see when I visit my grandparents. So I raised it with Dr. Dwight Billings, the sociology professor from Kentucky. I think you're right about that. There's certainly a similar set of ideologies and values that the coal industry manipulates. They consciously draw on this stuff to legitimate their presence in the mountains, even though they're contributing less and less to the economies there. Coal has been so important in people's lives. And you've got multiple generations of people that have worked in the mines or been in local economies that were dependent on the mines at the same time that it has caused thousands and thousands of deaths, huge health injuries now, today we're seeing with mountaintop removal and pollution. You know, so it's a, it's a really kind of a horrible situation. It's a travesty. And yet these advertising campaigns are very powerful and effective in saying you know, you're serving your country. One of the things that sparked my interest in telling this story was an interaction that I saw on Facebook, the place where all meaningful dialogue happens nowadays, of course. My dad uses Facebook mostly to share science stories. And a couple of years ago, he posted about some green energy technology that was being developed and promoted as a potential alternative for coal. In the comment section, one of his friends from Appalachia wrote that her daddy was a coal miner and that he sacrificed to support his family, so the story offended her. This response was confusing for both me and my dad. Neither of us were raised in Appalachia. 
How do you have a conversation about transitioning to clean energy solutions when even bringing it up is viewed as offensive and disrespectful? Those billboards and t-shirts and bumper stickers that you see when you're heading into Appalachia, some of those were paid for by coal companies, but a lot of them weren't. Many of them are bought and sold by coal miners, by their families, and even just by people in their communities. And even though my ancestors are from Appalachia, even though I've spent my summers and my holidays there and heard stories about Appalachia my whole life growing up, this is a cultural difference that I've struggled to wrap my head around. How have coal companies been so successful at turning the very people that they have exploited for generations into their greatest proselytizers? I interviewed my grandma about this over a year ago now. And I admit that listening back to the tape today, I'm a bit embarrassed about the frustration in my voice. She wasn't giving me the answer that I wanted, and it wasn't an answer I felt was neat or satisfactory enough to explain this cultural divide that I was seeing. At the time, I thought that this recording was just garbage, but listening back to it now, I realized that my grandma was getting at something really important, and also that she was right. You're grateful for the coal mine. And these coal mines were keeping other work out of this area Mm -hmm. because they want to keep people Mm -hmm. in the mines, you know? And still, people love them, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, it's because of the mines that you don't have other work here. That's that's why there was no other work that came here because they kept the other work out, Right. you know? And, and, And it's just, I'm trying to understand what would keep people so loyal to the system that is keeping them down. <laughs> Don't you think a lot of that, uh, the shirts and, and the advertisement and thing, don't you think that a lot of it is to make themselves feel better? Yes, I do. I think it's to tell other people that you might be a coal miner, but you are you have a living, you're making a living, and you're proud of it. Because other people have put coal mining down, and it's been a, a job for losers for so long that I think they have a desire to make it look like it's better, that they are proud of it because they get... Do you think that people think it's a job for losers? I think a lot of them do. I think outside people do a lot. Hmm. I don't know if people think it's a job for losers. I think people think it's a job... I think people that other think people coal miners aren't don't aren't very smart, but I don't know if they think that they're losers. I well, think they but, think that they don't know about science. It's know? a combination of things because when you're a loser, it's because you can't do anything else, hmm. and that's the way they think of coal miners. Coal miners can't do anything else. They're they're losers. They can't do. They can't go out and do. This is not my attitude. This is what I think a lot of people from the outside think. I think I think the miners have been cut down as losers, and I think this is their way of fighting back some and saying that they are proud of what they do. They're proud because they can make money. They're proud because it gives them a life. I, I think they're just trying to build it up. See, coal miners aren't just trying to hold on to some dying industry that's dirty and dangerous and bad for our environment. According to the coal companies, they're building America. You can hear the way that coal companies preyed on this in this ad for console energy from the 1970s. America can't afford to be dependent on other countries for energy. Coal is America's way to energy independence. That's why Consolidation Coal Company and the finest miners in the world work day and night to help meet the country's energy needs. Consol people, highly skilled, highly trained, and most of all, your good neighbors. When the rest is gone, there'll still be coal. It's America's ace in the hole. Because of them, the light shines through. Appalachia isn't just trying to hold on to their jobs. They're trying to hold on to their dignity. When I was about six years old, my family went to Virginia for Easter weekend. After fulfilling the annual tradition of losing the Easter egg hunt, 
I began putting on what I thought was a pretty decent impression of my mama's accent. So while fishing in the creek or roller skating in the garage or giving my mama a makeover, I'd gradually throw in more and more slang, dropping the consonants off the ends of my words and subtly shifting my grammar. And I thought I was pulling it off pretty convincingly too, until my mom pulled me aside and very gently asked me to stop. People might think you're making fun of them, she said. At six years old, I was only just starting to notice the way my family talked. And what I noticed was that I talked differently. I remember sitting on the floor of my great-grandma's house as she told stories, and the room would erupt in laughter. And I would laugh along without being totally sure that I'd even caught what she'd said. You're dating me the stinkest little thing you ever seen. I was the only cousin with a Canadian accent. When I'd go with my mama to the store, people would ask me where I was from. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to prove that I belonged with my family. To me, that accent was rolling out biscuits on the kitchen counter. It was going to flat-footing shows with my papa. It was the longest hug from my mama as we packed up the car at four in the morning. And her on the front porch waving to us, yelling, y'all hurry on back now. At six years old, I didn't understand how anyone could hear anything different when they heard that accent. But of course, not everyone has a mama like mine. And not everyone associates Appalachia with all of those things that I love. People in Appalachia are human, and I'm not trying to say that they're perfect. They're complicated, just like everyone else. But it seems like there's only really ever one narrative when it comes to people in Appalachia. I wonder, what did you picture in your mind when you first heard Ken's voice at the beginning of the story? I grew up in Buckhannon County. Was it something out of Here Comes Honey Boo Boo? You better The Redneck Game is an annual event here in Georgia. It's all about Southern pride, similar to the Olympics, but with a lot of missing teeth and a lot of butt correction. Or maybe it was something like Cletus from The Simpsons. Cletus, you are the most wonderful husband and son I ever had. I don't have such a good memory since I drank my thermometer. Or worse, maybe you were picturing something out of Deliverance. Talk about genetic deficiencies. Not pitiful. Now let's you just drop them pants. Come on, squeal, squeal. As out-of-state coal companies were building railroads into Appalachia to begin mining for coal, the Appalachian stereotype began to spread across America. People from the Appalachian Mountains, or mountain people, were rumored to be backwards, ignorant, stupid, and even violent. Those stereotypes can be used to justify exploitation of a region and the people. They're not worthwhile, and so therefore, let's just do what we can. The hillbilly stereotype gave America permission to look away as out-of-state coal companies came in, took the land, and exploited the people who lived there. With one breath, coal companies were telling Appalachians that they were brave for working in the mines. Because of them, the light shines through with the next, they were writing to politicians and journalists about how coal miners were too stupid and too underdeveloped to own or manage their own property or finances. These stereotypes keep new people from coming into Appalachia, and they keep other industries out, and they also sometimes prevent people who are born there from leaving. People that don't live around coal mines and don't really have any grasp of coal mines, they probably don't realize what we're risking every day to go in and mine the coal that they use for electricity. Here's John again, who was working as an underground coal miner before COVID caused massive furloughs in the mine where he worked. But the people in the area that we live in, they they respect us for what we do and they understand what we're doing and, and how dangerous the job is. And a lot of times you talk to people and ask what you do and tell them you're a coal miner, like, God, no way I'd ever do that. That's, 
that's awesome that you can, but it's like I, I could never go underground. You know, that's what a lot of people say. And so, yeah, they they do uh, people in the area, especially. I don't know about outside of the area. Coal miners are respected at home. They're seen as heroes. Why would you ever leave that to go somewhere where people see you as backwards and ignorant? Beautiful rolling mountains surround Appalachia, acting as a barrier and keeping its people tucked away inside. Part of America, inherently American, but also somehow separate from America. And these stereotypes further separate the mountain people from everyone else. Historically, they made it okay for us to look away while coal companies came in and exploited the land and its people. And they make it okay for us to turn away from what's happening there today. There's a there's a pretty devastating effect when a mine shuts down. You know, there's a lot of money that leaves the area. You know, right now, the way it is around here, take for example, McDowell County. I heard about McDowell County a lot when I was in Virginia. Mining in the county has been declining steadily for years. At one time, when coal was booming, McDowell County was home to almost 100,000 people. Today, there are less than 20,000 people living there. When coal miners lost their jobs, they stopped spending money. And when they stopped spending money, other people in the county, people who didn't even have anything to do with the mines, started losing their jobs too. The county stopped collecting as much in taxes, making it harder to provide the resources and the services that the people left behind needed. Eventually, due to a combination of low sales and competition with Amazon, even Walmart decided to leave McDowell County. That seemed to be the marker of just how bad things had gotten. It's a pretty devastating effect when one large mine shuts down. It it makes a, a drastic change to the, the communities. More than just the coal miners lose their jobs. It's a lot more than just the coal miners. Today, coal miners don't have to reach too far to imagine what would happen when their mine eventually closes. For years, coal miners across Appalachia have been losing their jobs, not just for environmental reasons, but for economic reasons too. The easy-to-get coal has already been got, and reaching the coal in the mountains is getting more and more difficult and more and more costly. Other energy options are becoming less and less expensive. The writing is on the wall. Many people know that coal mining is dying. But what happens when a mine does shut down? What happens to all the people left behind? When the, the money left, the drugs come in really bad. That's pretty much all McDowell County is now. As a coal miner, you could go to the doctor and tell him your back was hurting and he would give you pain pills. So when you get addicted to them or you sell them, <laughs> and it, it made it really bad. A lot of the people I used to work with, they ended up getting addicted to pills. It, pretty sad situation with all that. And then it just gets worse and worse when you take money out of the situation. People try to find something to uh, replace that empty feeling they've got in them. And a lot of people end up turning the drugs over it. If coal miners are stupid, selfish, or ignorant for wanting to keep the mines open, then the rest of us don't have to care about their suffering after the mines close. And the mines will close. They should close. There's no denying now the devastating effects of the carbon that's released when coal is burned for energy. And besides, it just doesn't make economic sense to keep them open. But assuming the worst of coal miners doesn't shut those mines down any faster... It just pushes them further away and makes them fight even harder to hold on to coal. And why should they look forward to a future without coal? Why should they trust that something better is waiting over the horizon? When the coal mines close, many communities in Appalachia might turn into their own versions of McDowell County. Ghost towns full of people seeking to fill that empty feeling. And maybe you're thinking, well, good. There was never really much worth saving there anyway. But that's not what I see. I see people who love so hard, they're willing to risk anything to make it work for their family. I see people who overcame their differences to demand they be treated equally in one of the strongest labor movements in American history. 
I see people who would give you the shirt off their back or a leftover chicken burrito just in case you miss supper. I see my grandma sitting on her porch telling stories and laughing until her stomach hurts and my grandpa cheering on his high school football team and mountains that look like they never end. Isn't it possible to take away the coal mines but keep all that? You know, it's a different life. I like I've been in both places. You know, uh, I got a sister that lives up there in Cleveland, the other side of Cleveland, and and you know they're happy with it up there. But uh, these old mountains has always been my home. You know, I, just, I love being here, especially at this time of the year when everything's turning so green and pretty and. Mm-hmm. I love it when the snow, fresh snow comes too, you know, it just seems like it just cleans everything, you know, new, fresh rain comes, it just brings on a, it does something to your soul where it does to me, you know, I love it. You get back on top of these mountains and see forever, you know. Lord, you've been good to me, you blessed me. Ain't got no complaints. Are you proud of being a coal miner? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I ain't got nothing to be ashamed of. I am proud. Just something about that hole that draws me. I mean, you know, I just, I don't know. It's crazy. It is. <laughs> I just, I love it. is presented by the Frequency Podcast Network. It was created by Annalisa Nielsen and me, Stephanie Phillips. This episode was produced by Annalisa Nielsen with sound mixing from Ryan Clark. Special thanks to Deepak Bidwai and Perry Blatz for helping with the research. And finally, the song you're hearing right now, Country Roads, it's being played by Julie Title, and you can find her music on Spotify. Spotify.